Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hey, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Uh, Each week, we come to you with an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. We talk with artists, musicians, craftspeople, uh, as well as people who help promote the arts in their community. And today, we're going to be talking about film, documentary film, art film, moving images, still images, with John Rash. John, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Larry. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I've been a big fan of the show for a long time, and I'm happy to talk about what I do here in Oxford. Right. So you are currently a a director-producer at the Southern Documentary Project at the University of Mississippi, as well as an assistant professor. Um, So why don't you first, let's start off, give people an overview of what, you know, what you're doing right now. Sure. Yeah. My my role here mainly is to be a documentary storyteller. So often that means through the medium of film and video, but I'm also a still photographer and occasionally dabble in audio and multimedia installation. Right now, I am currently engaged in a oral history project that's involved with the Southern Punk Archive, which I'm sure we can talk about a bit later, that is just sort of looking at documenting the history of punk rock music here in the South. And I'm also working on a couple of film projects in general. I have this really amazing position through the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi, which has a long legacy of marrying sort of interdisciplinary uh, approaches at studying the South with a documentary practice dating back to Bill Ferris's involvement with the center here. And what I do is mostly look for interesting stories and have the ability to go out and help document those and then take those stories into the world where they eventually will end up in the university's permanent archive and on the Southern Documentary Project's website for people to view for free. And and before we leave it, just give us an over... The Southern Documentary Project is a kind of independent entity within the university setting, but you're you're not an academic department. That's right. So there's shells within shells here that we can talk about. The uh, Center for the Study of Southern Culture is a center. It's not an academic department, so it's interdisciplinary, which involves folks from academic departments who have an interest in studying the American South, coming together to teach classes and to plan programs under the umbrella of the center. And then the Southern Documentary Project is an institute of the center where we specifically are engaged in documenting the South. I also teach classes um, in my role, so I'm not a tenured professor, but we have an MFA program in documentary studies as well as a documentary track for students who are engaged in studying the South through the center's classes. Well, that's excellent. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your um, your development as an artist. Um, so you're originally from North Carolina, right? Yeah, I was born in North Carolina, uh, actually in western North Carolina, kind of between Boone and Asheville. Um, You know, Asheville has become sort of a destination art hub now, but when I was growing up there, 
a teenager in the 1990s, there wasn't a lot happening. So I ended up moving off the mountain down to the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, where I got my undergraduate degree, my BFA, uh, mostly doing graphic design and photography. And uh, I actually published a independent magazine for about seven years, uh, starting with the time that I was finishing up my undergraduate degree, which led me to explore photography as a medium, mostly for my publication. But I also, because I had an art education degree, knew from that time forward that I was more interested in academics and being an educator and trying to share these skills that I had learned with others versus going into the world as a graphic designer or someone who was using my craft as a commercial art. So I worked at a, at a Randolph Community College, which is a, has a fabulous photo program. Like you, you can't imagine this place has facilities that almost rival SCAD and has kids moving from all around the country to come there to get a two-year associate's degree in photography. So I was able to teach there and use their facilities and continue my craft as a photographer. But this was also around 2004, which was about the time that the large camera companies started to put video capability into these cameras and photographers were suddenly able to sort of reimagine themselves as both videographers and still photographers or filmmakers. So that's when I really began my interest in moving image because suddenly the device that I'd had all this time as my art making tool had this new feature that I found fascinating. I had always sort of thought of filmmaking as this black magic that was involved that you needed hundreds of people to work on because I would see the names at the end of movies and sort of be overwhelmed by that. That's something I could never do on my own. But then suddenly I could. It was in my hand. Like it was all there and I was able to make these videos and films just as an individual person. And around 2008, after the financial crash, I started looking around for more stability in my job and decided to go back to get my MFA. And I was accepted in 2012 to go to Duke University for their MFA in documentary and experimental art. And I completely changed my approach as an art maker through that MFA program and came out on the other side of it as a documentary filmmaker. You're listening to the Arts Hour. Today we're talking with John Rash. He's a producer at the Southern Documentary Project at the University of Mississippi, as well as a a professor uh, teaching through the Center for Study of Southern Culture. So kind of going back just a little bit, what was your initial, what brought you to photography initially? Were you on the high school yearbook committee? What, what, how, why did you pick up the camera to begin with? So I remember the very first photograph that I ever made. I was in first grade and a photographer came to visit our class and taught us how to make pinhole cameras with Quaker oatmeal boxes. And I had the choice to make a single exposure by peeling the tape off of the pinhole once and leave it open for a certain number of seconds. Or I could peel it for half the time, close the hole, and then move to a second location and open it again and obtain a double exposure, two images on one. So I chose the double exposure because that sounded really interesting and kind of like magic to me. And I actually put myself in the second image. The first image was a rose bush that was outside of our classroom window. And the second image was me sitting cross-leg on the rug in our classroom floor. And when the image came back, it looked as if I was floating over the rose bush 
like some sort of magician. And that image was so formative because it really showed me how image making can recontextualize the world around you. It can tell a story, but it also allows you to reframe that story. And unfortunately, I don't have the photograph physically any longer. It's, you know, over the years, it gets lost in your parents' possessions and in it might be in a photo album somewhere, but I remember exactly what it looks like. And from that moment forward, I was fascinated with cameras and image making, although I don't think I owned a camera that I could call my own maybe until I was a teenager. But that was it. That, that, that gave me all the tools and all the information that I knew, needed to see to know how powerful the medium still photography was. And then, of course, that that just became even more so once I learned to pair sound with it and time and motion and all the things that you can do with video. Did, did you start out as, were you like kind of in your initial years, maybe in high school and early college, were, did you see yourself, uh, you know, as an artist or as a, a documentarian? Yeah, definitely more as an artist. I mean, I was always, art was always my favorite class in school, but I was never really great at drawing or painting. I mean, you know, I could look at things observationally and make something that looked like that thing, but it was never it was never exactly right. It was more interpretive. But with a camera, I could go out. I was I was actually more interested in like flowers and nature and things like that to start with. I think I think most people that have cameras initially just want to sort of preserve the beautiful things around them. And then later as I started to realize, again, some of the tricks that you can deploy with the camera, double exposures, long exposures, then then the magic and sort of the creative part of it started to emerge. And, you know, that first camera that I had as a teenager was just a point-and-shoot camera that I think came from the local drugstore. But when I bought a camera that had a interchangeable lens that you could then change the shutter speed, that's that's when it really became interesting because I could actually do things with the camera that started to alter the world around me and wasn't just documenting the world around me. So, so it really was the magic of transforming the world versus just documenting the world that, that made me love image making in the beginning. And, you know, looking at your website and some of the past projects you've done, it looks like you've done a lot of kind of... Um, what you call like installation type pieces where there's moving images, but it's within a space, it's within an environment. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily like something you're going to watch, you know, it's, it's, it's presentation in a space is important and not just uh, like a video clip that you're going to send somebody. So talk a little bit about, is that something coming out of kind of your years, you know, at Duke in kind of a master's program or what, how did you develop the interest in doing that type of work? Yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I, in some ways, it's related to the answer that I just gave. So I think that at some point along the way, I realized even if you're documenting things as they exist, there's the exhibition component and where you present this work and how that conversation exists around the organization of the images, the way that you show those images can also be transformative. So I really became interested once... I understood this in trying to transform spaces into an experience for the viewer and not just 
okay, I'm going to look at something that's in a rectangle on the wall and then walk away from it and maybe move on to the next one. But try to create a space that is more immersive. So one way that I've done that is since I've lived here in Oxford on an annual basis, I've organized an event in partnership with the local arts council called Projection. It's it's actually not my work, although I have participated. I act more as a curator and an event organizer for this event that's available to all local artists who would like to come and project their work onto the buildings in the Oxford Square. And it allows those folks to have that same experience as creators to see their work projected onto an architectural space that probably has a lot of geometric sort of angles and shapes that bend their work in ways that maybe isn't what they imagined when they first made it. But it also allows the public to come and walk through these spaces that maybe we take for granted on a daily basis and remember it and live it as if it's new in a completely different way than maybe they would have the day before. And then, of course, you come back the next day and the exhibition is gone because it's a one-night pop-up event. So it truly is an experience that you sort of had to be there, for, almost like a concert experience, right, like, like live music. You have recorded music, and there's sort of a pristine and beautiful thing about that. But then you have these live music experiences, which have a certain amount of chaos and, I would say, you know, like sort of in-the-moment interpretation that happens both on the on the hand of the creator and the audience, where it's almost like a conversation that's happening. So, so I really love that, and I've done that with my own work in gallery settings as well, but I also like extending that opportunity to, to others through this event that we plan every year in Oxford. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. Our guest today is John Rash. He is a producer at the Southern Documentary Project at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, and he teaches at the Center for Study of Southern Culture as well. So, John, looking at your list of work, there's a lot of uh, project work that you did in China, and I'm, I'm curious about your time there and, and what brought that about and what all did you do over there? I started learning Mandarin Chinese in 2008 just as sort of a weird hobby, um, something to do that wasn't, had nothing to do with my job, nothing to do with the things that I thought about on a day-to-day basis. And I traveled there and found that it was an amazing place to photograph and document. And from that experience, started taking my students there a couple times a year to 
go on photo exploration trips to have that experience, to be in a new place, to document a different culture. And after I had finished my MFA at Duke, Duke was actually in the process of opening a new campus just in the suburbs of Shanghai. And I was able to move there and work for them for four years um, before coming to Oxford. And actually being there and having deeper roots in the community, being able to form long-term relationships with folks, I was able to do work that was a lot more meaningful than just traveling there with my camera, traveling there with my students. And I was able to create a couple of films that I'm really proud of, a collaborative film that actually involved working together with a group of Chinese women who spoke with me about this experience of being sort of classified through these terms that are used heavily on the internet that sort of criticize women for their lack of traditional femininity. And we used those words, words that they selected in combination with these long video portraits that I filmed of them to create an installation piece that sort of brought these questions into a public forum. And then we would have panel discussions that followed those where I would sort of step away from the stage and let the women who were the participants in the project, who you would actually see on screen, discuss their ideas with the audience. And I learned so much from that experience that I'm actually using in my job here at the Southern Documentary Project in terms of thinking of folks whose story I'm privileged enough to document and help bring into the world, not as subjects of something that I'm making, but as participants in a project that we're creating together. I also learned a lot about this idea of me as a storyteller coming into communities that aren't necessarily my community, where I have a more shallow or surface-based level of information or understanding. Even if I've done my research, of course, I'm never going to have the same understanding as a local And embracing that, acknowledging that, and trying to provide some agency to the folks who actually come from that community in terms of making some of the decisions and helping me to tell the story. Um, So when you were teaching there, were you you teaching international students that were there, or was it— was it local people taking the classes at this at this Duke outpost? Oh yeah, so Duke Kunshan University, um, it's mostly domestic students from within China, um, but they have I think maybe thirty percent of their enrollment is international, and a lot of that comes from the United States. It's changed a lot since I've been there because now they have a four-year degree program, but the years that I was there it had just started with only graduate programs. So we're talking maybe 100 students at the time that I was there, but it's it's grown it's grown quite a bit. I think that, you know, maybe three or four times from when I was there. But uh, it was a great experience, and it was really interesting to see a campus. I mean, you nev- when have you ever seen a, a new university launched from the ground up? So I learned a lot from that experience that I use here at the University of Mississippi when we talk about our new MFA program, when we talk about new curriculum and really starting to think about these things from the student's perspective in terms of, you know, what are they looking for when you don't have these decades of tradition that maybe dictate the way things have been done. It really opens you to do some really new and interesting things. And I try to carry that with me even when I am having conversations here in departments 
that are trying to do new things, but sometimes that precedent is following us and and can be a bit overwhelming. So of your Chinese students, what were they, you know, interested in in documenting or trying to do? What was some of the, the themes that you saw across their, their interests? Well, you know, the thing that was interesting was when we would have projects where the students from the U.S., would go out together with the students from China. And actually, we did this with the trips that I planned to China in my previous role at um, Randolph Community College on those Chinese exploration trips that I planned. I would always try to partner with Chinese universities and create that same type of environment because what you would find is that what the international students were interested in photographing or documenting, the students who live there always found these things to be so commonplace that they would never photograph them, right? Like they would just take them for granted. But then through the photographs of the students who saw these things new for the first time, they realized, oh, that is kind of interesting. That is kind of unique and beautiful. And then the Chinese students, I think they were always struggling to look for things in the environment that they had never seen before, or that they were trying to present something that might be surprising So I always found that they were creatively sort of digging a bit deeper because they weren't necessarily seeing the things that they passed on the street every day as potential beautiful photographs or beautiful subjects for their films. You're listening to The Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is John Rash. He's a producer at the Southern Documentary Project at the University of Mississippi in Oxford. Okay, well, let's let's, uh, move on to your time here and... A project that you've gotten a lot of uh, interest in and, and has been shown pretty widely is this documentary film that you did. Now it's, I guess, a few years back. The title of it is Negro Terror, but it is about a, a trio of black uh, punk musicians from Memphis and kind of a, a lot about the story of the leader of that band. Tell us, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that project. Yeah, I, I actually, when I first moved to Oxford and took my role here at the University of Mississippi, I was looking around for both stories that might be interesting to document for the Center for the Study of Southern Culture, but also looking for things to do myself on the weekends because I hadn't lived here before. So I was looking over concert bills in Memphis and came across this band name, Negro Terror, and of course had no idea what the band looked like, had no idea what their message was, and imagined that it was either going to be the worst possible example of how those two words could come together or something really interesting and unique. So with a quick YouTube search, I came across a video that the band had made themselves that was a white supremacist punk band song from the 1980s that they had covered and recontextualized with these video images that they had added on top of it with examples of police brutality and a lot of um, sort of commentary just sort of about the types of things that they were interested in as a band. And I knew immediately that these guys were brilliant. They were trying to put something out into the world that had a message. And I really wanted to try to help bring that story to others Although this was a band that at that time had never played outside of Memphis, really just had this one sort of homemade video that they had put out on the internet, and were starting to play a lot of shows in their own community. So I thought this could be an interesting film as well to make a film about a band that really is just starting to make their first baby steps as a band. 
to see where it goes. Because um, usually, you know, you think of documentary, like music documentaries as sort of the behind the music template where you're on the back end of a career, looking back at the arc of, you know, the the rise and the fall and then the rise again of um, bands that have been together for 20 years. So I thought this was a really unique opportunity to, to look at it from the very beginning, but also to help tell the story of a band that obviously had a message that they were trying to put out in the world. Tell us some about, and, and I think a lot of the, the story really revolves around the, the leader of the band, um, the bass player and singer. Yeah, that's true. So Omar Higgins uh, was the singer and the bass player for Negro Terror. Really, it was a project that um, he launched and pulled together because Omar was just that kind of person. He was really important in the Memphis music community while he was around, and unfortunately, he passed away about six months after the film I thought was completed. Um, we had already taken the film to the Indie Memphis Film Festival where it premiered and won an award. We uh, designed, similar to what I was talking about before with this idea of collaboration, along the way as I was making the film, I discussed with the band and they agreed that it might be interesting to design the film in a way that it could be seen with them playing in front of the screen essentially live scoring the film. So they would live score and provide some ambient textures during the interview parts of the film because it's a documentary. But then in the parts where you see them perform their music, if you watch the film now, they actually played those songs live in front of the movie screen. And we were taking that out into the world as this sort of hybrid film and concert experience. And Omar passes away about six months after that due to a staph infection. And I was devastated because I had become great friends with Omar by this point after spending so long filming him and his band. So I went back to Memphis and filmed the memorial procession that they had for Omar. And, you know, four or 500 people from the community showed up and they had a second line that marched from Bill Street to the cathedral where they had his memorial service. And it was so powerful. I think it's probably the first time I can remember filming something and crying at the same time just because I felt like the weight of it was just present, like both in my mind and my heart as it was happening in front of my eyes. And now the film starts with that. Um, so if you, you can see the film online now for free, it starts with that because I didn't want to pull people's heartstrings at the end of the film where you sort of the experience I had where you learn about these musicians, you start to care about them as individuals. You see the art that they're putting out in the world and then pull the rug out from under and you learn that this person is no longer with us. I really wanted people to know that going into the film so that they could process and then celebrate and enjoy the contributions that Omar and the other guys in the band made while the band was around. So I was lucky to be there in the moment as it was happening it really resonates with me, the importance of the work that I do now because of that experience. It really made me think about how I'm honored and privileged to be able to document people's stories because maybe these are people that no one else will ever have the chance to spend this time with and to interview for hours and then have this conversation that they can give back to the community or even just the friends and the family of this person where you've actually sat down and essentially captured their oral history or their personal biography through their own words and their own stories. And Omar was an interesting person in that uh, also musically he was he was very diverse. I mean, you think, oh, well, he's a 
he's a punk musician, but he also had this like long running reggae band, right, with his brothers. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Omar was, you know, he's an auteur and a virtuoso in many ways. Like his his brothers and his bandmates would talk about how Omar could just pick up an instrument and essentially learn it on his own within a couple of days. The thing that you don't see in the film is that Omar and his brothers actually play in churches in Memphis every Sunday morning. And that was something that I wanted to include in the story because when you hear the music of Negro Terror, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's not for everyone. It's, it's a lot of deep growling. It's a lot of fast, loud guitars. But then you have these same musicians that are making that type of music going in and singing gospel on Sunday mornings, right? And... The reason why you don't see that in the film is because as a band, uh, Negro Terror were really out there saying things that painted a target on their heads in terms of white supremacist hate, really sort of antagonizing like neo-Nazis and a lot of this sort of like racist rhetoric that existed in the community, not just in Memphis, but sort of internationally. And they asked me when we when they agreed to let me film them for this project, to only document them in the spaces that they exist as this band, which meant the churches were off limits, which meant the, the schools that they work in as teachers and the other things that they do with their daily lives, just as people who live and work and survive in Memphis, would put the people who necessarily like we're sort of on the periphery of the band or maybe didn't even know about the band they didn't want to put those people at risk by having them even if it was just in a background shot like included in the film and and of course yeah. I honored and respected that but it 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 definitely was a limitation that I that I had to work around and was a little disappointing at first because I just that contrast of seeing them in the punk club on Saturday night and then in the church on Sunday morning. I mean, what what a great story that would be. Well, let's hear another track. This isn't the band we've been talking about, but we've got another song that is kind of related back to our next topic of the, the archive. Uh, so tell us a little bit about this next song we're going to hear for the next break. Yeah, so this is from uh, White Trash Superman, which is a band from Starkville, Mississippi. They were out there making music in the early 90s. Uh, this was a time when punk music especially on the poppier end, may, may sound more like what we might call indie rock today. But uh, this band was one of the earlier and more important bands in terms of what I've, what I've been able to document coming out of Mississippi and had a lot of connections all throughout the state, all throughout the region. And um, a couple members of this band went on to form another band called The Grumpies, who had several records out on some larger punk labels. So I think this song is probably pretty difficult to find although it is on the internet and um is kind of it's the type of thing that i've been looking for in terms of what the southern punk archive does is these sort of hidden gems that are part of the legacy of this music in this region but you can't find them on spotify this is larry morrissey thanks for listening to the podcast version of the mississippi arts hour The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app.
Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for our final segment on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is John Rash. He's a producer at the Southern Documentary Project at the University of Mississippi in Oxford. So your latest project, the Southern Punk Archive, we've been teasing it the whole interview. So talk about what what this is, what you're trying to uh, do with this is a physical archive. This is a virtual archive. What what will it be and, 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 and what, what's kind of the scope of it going to be? Sure. Yeah, it's a little of all of those things. So those who know anything about music here at the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi probably are aware that we have an amazing blues archive that exists in our library archives and special collections. Thinking about that blues archive and thinking about my own involvement in the punk community uh, back in North Carolina when I was a teenager and then actually throughout my entire life, punk music is usually contextualized in terms of these larger international metropolitan areas in the United States, New York, L.A., Chicago. But I have lived and witnessed the network that exists throughout the South. And actually, the first time that I came to Mississippi in 1998 was to a trailer park in Biloxi where there was a punk venue that was ran by a kid there and his family and had been going for about five years by that point. And he had talked his dad into letting him run this, basically their old trailer that they had moved out of, um, turn it into a venue. And the band that I was on tour with, it was no accident that we ended up there. This place had become so important in terms of the touring circuit at that time that we intentionally went to Biloxi just to play at the trailer park. It's those types of stories and those types of unlikely venues that I think people need to know about because it really hasn't been preserved in the way that like CBGBs of New York or like these larger punk clubs that, you know, obviously like had connections to an industry that existed in those cities. The South has always kind of been bootstrapping it in a way, but in a way that has also encouraged kids who might live in that trailer park in Biloxi to also drive to a similar town in Alabama where someone's doing shows in a farmhouse or a barn. And that idea of like DIY spaces and sort of unlikely concert venues and the types of bands that play there is a story that I started to see almost forgotten because, again, these some of these... Uh, videos and photographs and uh, even the music from the bands that played at these places aren't necessarily on the large streaming platforms. So starting an archive that can collect that material, put some of it out digitally, have some of it exist here at the university when we have the ability to gather physical evidence, and that will be preserved by the institution and permanently stored in a way that you know, isn't going to happen if it's in a shoebox under my bed. And punks are incredible pack rats. And a lot of folks have this stuff, but they haven't thought about what's going to happen to it when they move on. 
And I really wanted to start a repository where when people are ready to pass these materials on, they might think about this place, the Southern Punk Archive, here at the University of Mississippi as a place that those materials can go to live. So that 200 years from now, if there's a PhD student writing their dissertation on punk in Mississippi in the 90s, they might come across the Little House, which was the trailer park in Biloxi, and see the photographs that have been donated to the archive, see some of the videos that have been donated to the archive, see actual show flyers from the 90s that were made at Kinko's down the street that were handed out to kids at those shows. That's why I find it important. I find it really interesting. And I think in a lot of ways, like punk is our contemporary folk music in the sense that it's not that complicated unless you want it to be musically. Of course, you can you can play very technically, but it's also like the bar for accessibility is very low. And that's why you have 12-year-old kids opening for bands that might be their heroes in these spaces that are essentially underground sort of DIY makeshift spaces all throughout the American South. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting in that the genre is so closely, you know, kind of in the larger media sense, the bigger stories that are told in national magazines and stuff, it's punk rock being kind of a, an L.A. thing or a New York thing. And, and, and some of the, you know, the big legends did come out of there, but there were, especially as the kind of, as it spread throughout the country, it was really a very regionalized type of uh, music. And there were lots of bands that maybe never left their region, but were very well known within that, re- you know, toward that region and, and, and developed friendships and, and these types of things. And Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing that you start to see is that um, the folks who might live in one of these towns, like the heroes aren't these national bands from like New York or L.A., but it's the band from the next state over because they always come to your town as their first stop on their tour. They have to get to the bigger cities somehow, right? They're not just going to drive 20 hours to um, L.A. So in a lot of ways, you have these regions, as you mentioned, where bands like Corrosion of Conformity only get to the national level by the sort of grassroots effort of relentlessly touring and building up their name in these local towns. And in a lot of ways, there are bands that never make it to the national level, but are still thought of as sort of the the heroes that the kids who just got guitars as 15-year-olds want to emulate, because that's the band that they get to see yeah. every couple months that comes and plays at the DIY space in their yeah, town. Yeah. And the fact, you know, a, a lot of these folks, you know, um, as you mentioned with the, the band Negro Terror, you know, they, they have other jobs, you know, they're in, it's very rare that people are able to um, do it full time. Well, you're listening to the Arts Hour. We're having an interesting discussion here with John Rash, who is the uh, producer at the Southern Documentary Project in Oxford at the university. So, John, what, what, so so for the archive, like what what are your steps to kind of collect what what stories have do you have now? And, you know, maybe some examples or, or what what are your um, goals kind of, you know, moving forward in terms of working on the collections? Sure. I'm, I, I'll be honest. I realized almost immediately that I had been overly ambitious in starting something called the Southern Punk Archive because the American South is quite large. And as we just spoke about, there's a lot of towns and a lot of disparate scenes around this region that 
will truly be a lifelong work to try to document even a fraction of it. So I had to sort of think about limitations and focus on particular regions instead of trying to do it all at once. So I began by going to the well that I knew the best, which was North Carolina, and just asking. I played in bands in North Carolina. I published a zine in North Carolina. I knew a lot of people there that were able to really get me started with some demo tapes, some show flyers, things like that, that you can find on our website. I launched a band camp where I was able to share demo tapes and hard-to-find recordings for free. And through that, I actually found that there's other folks who have band camps that are similar for their own local region. So there's a Memphis punk archive, there's an Alabama punk archive, and I've actually developed relationships with these other archives that are regional that are around who have been able to share their resources. And then when I come across something that they don't have yet, I can pay in kind to them and sort of send it on to them so that they can share with their network. But in the last three months, I focused specifically on Memphis because I was able to have an artist residency at Crosstown Arts in Memphis, which has this wonderful artist residency. And It's a three-month residency, and in my time there, I've used that time specifically to do long-form oral history interviews with folks who have been involved in the Memphis punk community there. So I mentioned earlier Elisa Trout, someone that I spent some time with recently, and she's been in so many bands, I think we spoke for two and a half hours and only covered part of her contributions to the legacy of punk in that town. But um, that's kind of where I am right now is sort of thinking more locally to Oxford, Mississippi, and um, Memphis, the areas that I can drive to and speak to people and gather stories, firsthand oral histories and firsthand recollections of things that have happened, because I think that's really valuable. A lot of archives might spend their time in trying to gather materials from the past because those folks aren't around any longer. But fortunately, I think this is coming along at a time that I'm able to still find folks who were there for some of the first iterations, some of the first bands that might have existed in some of these scenes. But I really want to look more deeply at Mississippi. I mean, Mississippi's had a tremendous tradition of these DIY spaces. I mentioned the Little House earlier, um, Maxi, Mississippi, uh, Cleveland, Mississippi have all had punk houses. Right now, there's a tremendous scene in Hattiesburg, um, which has kind of always been there. So looking at Mississippi is really the next step for me because I think there's a lot there that people have taken for granted or maybe people outside of Mississippi don't know exist. And then maybe move on to another scene after I feel like I've exhausted the resources that are still available in terms of people to talk about, show spaces to document, and gathering music that maybe is less heard or isn't available widely on the internet right now so that the archive can be a place that people can come to and hear music, see photographs, see show flyers, listen to, you know, sometimes up to two hour long interviews with folks who can tell you how they got into punk, what it was like to be in Maxie, Mississippi when there was house shows happening there and who were the people that came to those shows and why it was important to them. So to me, that's that's what it's all about, is creating a well of information that, you know, maybe later I might make a film about. Not all of them will be used by me in a film or a podcast or a creative project, 
But the great thing about the archive is that they will exist for others to use. Right. So in a lot of ways, I'm thinking about my own work and how I use archives and trying to create something that others can use in that same way. So if, if, if somebody's listening and they're interested in donating or you know recommending someone to be interviewed, what, where should we send them? Yeah, so I, the website is easy. It's southernpunkarchive.com. Uh, we also have an Instagram account where I post some clips from our interviews. So I manage all of that. So you can contact me through southernpunkarchive.com or send me a direct message on the Instagram account, which is also Southern Punk Archive. There's a form that I have set up linked off of the website where you can actually do all the things, Larry, that you just mentioned, which tell me where you're from, who I might need to talk to, if you have something to donate. Um, The one thing that I will say is that the donation process, um, I work hand in hand with Greg Johnson here at the University Library because he has a system set up that he's used for years for the Blues Archive. And that there's a form that people have to fill out, which is called a gift form that allows them to donate these materials in an official way so that it can exist permanently at the University of Mississippi Library Archives and Special Collections. And for people who are interested in your the music documentary you did, other, other work of yours, where should we send them? Sure, yeah. So southdocs.org, that's for the Southern Documentary Project, um, has all of the works that I've created here. It's sort of like a mini Netflix it's a Vimeo, it has a Vimeo account associated to it, but everything's for free on there. So there's probably 10 or 15 hours worth of documentary films on there that you can watch for free anytime that you want that have been produced by myself and my colleagues here at the Southern Documentary Project. So that's southdocs.org. If you want to see my photography or any of my uh, documents of my installation work that we spoke about earlier, um, johnrash.com is my personal website. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Larry, I really appreciate this opportunity, and I, I hope that some folks hear this and reach out so that I can come meet them and document their stories. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.com. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel.